the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you know by now, every weekday at 4 o'clock, we gather here at this particular time to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Now, I know people are busy in December, and especially the last part of December, phones get really quiet. But remember, the program is much more interesting when you're involved. So we'd love your live calls and questions at 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Uh, you can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions in directly via that medium. If you're driving in your car, please use the free KSLR mobile app, the hands-free feature, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer, 340-9585. Since it's Tuesday, we don't have a bunch of stuff to talk about, so let me just remind you of two things that we've been reminding you about for uh, all last week and yesterday, uh, December 15th, that's this Friday night at 6.30 uh, in the evening at Judson High School Performing Arts Center. It's our children's Christmas play. Uh, when I say children, it's from uh, pre-K all the way up to uh, high school and probably even have a couple of college freshmen who are in it this year. So uh, December 15th, 6.30 in the evening, free of charge, no admission charge, and you will truly be blessed. I can't imagine a better night uh, for a family, uh, especially in light of the fact that we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus during this time where most people's focus is on what they're going to spend, what they're going to buy, or what they're going to get. So that's this Friday night, and then on Sunday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, following our three services, um, we'll have our annual Christmas dinner at the Shirt Civic Center. Um, we'd love to invite you. There's going to be plenty of food, lots and lots and lots of people. Uh, you will have a blast, and the people there will blow you away. So if you're in the radio audience, you don't have anything else to do on that uh, Sunday afternoon, come and join us. Just make sure that you uh, find me, find Paula. We'll, we'd love to meet you. And, Thank you for coming. So that's on Sunday. So Friday and Sunday, lots of neat stuff going on. Um, other than that, we're ready to go to some questions. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. The first one is from Ralph. And Ralph wrote in saying, The Bible says God is jealous, but also that jealousy is a sin. And then he concludes, I don't understand. Ralph, the idea of jealousy is it's hard for us to divorce our sinful nature uh, from from thinking about certain words and certain emotions. Jealousy is one of them. Jealousy is a bad thing. Jealousy can destroy you. You know, it was from jealousy that Jesus was murdered. The Gospels say that it was out of envy or jealousy that the Jews plotted to murder Jesus. 
So you're right. Jealousy is a sin when that jealousy is human. But when the jealousy is heavenly, when it comes from God, it comes from a pure and righteous heart. And I think the best way to understand this, Ralph, is that God is not jealous of us, but that he's jealous for us. Now, that he's jealous for us is a really good thing, because what it means is that God wants only the best for us. He knows the plans that he has for us. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says that he's plotted those plans from before the foundations of the earth, knowing that he was going to love us. He had a great plan for us. And he's jealous that we walk in that plan because he wants us to enjoy the fullness of the best he has for us. And the only way we can do that is to be with him. So what God does, because he's jealous for us, is he makes it really difficult for us to stray too far. Now, obviously, he doesn't violate our free will, but he makes it difficult. We encounter difficulties, we encounter objections, we encounter um, consequences. Uh, And God loves us so much, and he's jealous for us to the degree that he does everything short of forcing us to do what he wants us to do in order to get us there. Hebrews says that God disciplines us. And as any father who loves his children disciplines them, our Father in heaven disciplines us as well. And that's born out of his jealousy. Again, jealousy for us, not jealousy of us. So, Ralph, I hope that answers your question. Here is another question. This one is from Anonymous. And he or she wants to know, why did Lot's wife turn into a pillar of salt? Well, she turned into as part of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, when Lot was literally, by the angels, snatched away, we cannot do anything. They'd come to, to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, but they couldn't do it until Lot was gone. Why? Because Lot was righteous. By the way, it's a great picture of the rapture of the church. Until we're gone, God can't judge this sin-filled world, this Christ-rejecting world. And Lot was so compromised in his own walk with with the Lord that he couldn't convince his family, even his family, and his wife, the closest one to him, of course. She looked back, and the word in Hebrew isn't just a casual glance. She looked back with a longing. In other words, she looked back thinking, well, I I don't want to leave my home in Sodom. I don't want to leave my friends. I don't want to leave what I was doing. I mean, that's just the way it was. And so she looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt in the judgment when the fire and the brimstone poured down. She turned into a pillar of salt and that was her judgment. So that's why she turned into a pillar of salt. It was through disobedience. Now, we don't turn into a pillar of salt if we disobey God. But isn't it interesting that we're told to be salt and light? In the ancient world, Anonymous, salt was a purifying agent. Uh, it's the way they preserved meat. It's the way they preserved other things. It was it was um, um, a purifier. You know, they had no modern-day refrigeration, of course. And so salt would be the thing that they would use to purify. Well, we're to be a purifying agent in this world. So we're to be exactly the opposite of what Lot's wife turned into when she longed and look backwards. So I hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to David calling on line one. David, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, I was calling because I want to talk about a topic that might be a little bit controversial. You see, the Bible says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie. But in Islam, they teach that it's permissible to lie to the quote-unquote non-believers. In other words, you lie to the infidels. Um, you know, David, I, I think one of the problems that we have with things like that, um, you know, we've talked before, you know, that uh, the Muslims don't care about our Bible. Uh, I, I think that's... They don't? The, 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 of course not. They don't care about our Bible. They they don't recognize it as the Word of God. And uh, I think sometimes, David, when we get into a position of expecting unbelievers to act like believers, 
I think we find ourselves in a in, in a situation where our problems they, they become unsolvable. So, um, uh, of course, if the Bible says, "Thou shalt not bear false witness or to lie," um, they their their religious book, which is not a holy book, but their religious book, says that it's okay to lie to infidels. Well, that's what we would expect from the enemy. The enemy is um, bound on destroying. Our Christian witness, the enemy is bound on trying to destroy our our lives. Uh, Jesus said he, he will seek to destroy, to kill, to rob. So I, I think that's what we have to understand, David, is simply that they don't believe in our Bible. My biggest concern with your question, David, isn't with Muslims. My biggest concern is the amount of Christians that lie. People who do say they believe in the Word of God. People who do... Um, profess to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And because Christians lie, I think it compromises our witness to such a degree. Um, Sometimes we lie for no reason, just to exaggerate. Sometimes we lie to spare people's feelings. Most often we just lie because that's what we do. We are liars by nature. And unless we're walking according to the Spirit of God, what, what we're going to do is is uh, compromise our witness. So I'd be much more concerned, David, if I were you, as I am with the Christians who tell lies of all types, um, as opposed to unbelievers. In fact, I'll go one step further. I think as uh, Christians, we ought to expect unbelievers to lie. You know, David, one of the things that uh, I tell our church here, and uh, one of the things that everybody at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio knows uh, there's nothing about my past that's hidden. And I told them, before I got saved, the only way you knew I was lying is if my lips were moving. And that's what we do. That's our sin nature at work. We want to look better than we are. We want people to think better of us than we deserve. And so we lie. We we exaggerate. And, um, it, it is a shame that our Christian witness is so compromised that we really can't call other people on lying, people that don't believe, because uh, judgment begins at the house of God, and uh, too often we don't want to admit that we are the ones who are lying. Uh, I could go really off on this, David. I appreciate the, the, the call and appreciate the question. But, you know, lying is not just telling an outright lie. Lying is living a life that is contrary to our profession of faith. Lying is not telling the whole truth. Lying, as an example, in a marriage between a husband and wife who are supposed to be one flesh, is keeping secrets. All of those things are lies. And it just shouldn't be said about Christians that we're guilty of lying. And unfortunately, that's not the case. So, David, I appreciate the question very, very much. 340-9585. Here's an interesting question from Joel. He says, do you believe that going to church is necessary for salvation? Joel, uh, the answer is no. We're saved by grace through faith, and that the faith, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we're saved. So believing in Jesus Christ, asking forgiveness for our sins, Offering our bodies to Jesus, that's what it takes to be saved. Now, here's the problem with your question. There are far too many people who say, well, if it's not necessary for salvation, I've got lots of other things that I can do on weekends, and I just want some time to myself so I don't need to go to church. Well, that usually betrays an unbelieving heart. We can say Jesus with our mouths, but we can be unbelievers. Our profession of faith then isn't honest. And so we rationalize not having to go to church. But see, when a Christian is saved, Joel, this is important. When a Christian is saved, going to church ought to be the thing that we want to do the most. Why? Because church is a place we go to learn about our Jesus. Bibles need to be open. Preachers need to preach and teach Jesus verse by verse through the Bible. And if you're getting fed at church, if the Bible's being taught, it's an exciting place to be. 
it's also a place where we get to use the gifts that God has given us. You know the Greek word for gifts, when we're talking about spiritual gifts, is the word charis. It's the same word that is translated in English, grace. God's grace to us, his unmerited favor to the infinitely deserving is to give us spiritual gifts. And church is the place that we learn to use those gifts. In fact, this Sunday, I'm going to be um, teaching from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, and we get to encounter some of those spiritual gifts and the importance of using them in the body because we're all part of one body. And by the way, that whole passage of Scripture begins with, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. So if we don't go to church, if we're not a part of a body, we think we can make it on our own. We think we don't need church. We're, we're already lacking humility. And to be in the will of God, humility matters. So church, Joel, isn't something that you do because you have to do it to, to be saved. It's something you do because you are saved. It's where the body of Christ is. It's where Jesus is. His presence is here. The book of Revelation says that he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands are the seven churches. Seven is the number of totality or perfection. So what he's describing there is that Jesus is in every church that bears his name. But that doesn't mean that by going there, we're Christians. It means that if we're Christians and we want to find Jesus, that's the place that we go. That doesn't mean we're not with Jesus the rest of the week. But church is something that we ought to love to do. We ought to be passionate about doing it. And I'm privileged to pastor a church uh, here, Joel, that's, that's um, just over full with people who are really, really in love with Jesus, who consider being here at the body uh, a, a, a privilege. So whenever I hear from somebody that they don't think they need to go to church, uh, I can tell them with the authority of the Word of God that they're wrong, that they lack humility, they think more highly of themselves than they ought, and I can also tell them that they're getting ripped off. So going to church is not a requirement to be saved. But make no mistake, anybody who's truly saved will want to go to church. Now, I'm not talking legalistically in the sense that you ha you can never miss. It's not going out of duty or going out of obligation. There's no perfect attendance awards that are given at the end of the year for people that never miss church. But it's hard to imagine not wanting to go and be around your people. I mean, these are the people we're going to spend forever in heaven with. And why anybody would not want to go to church or make excuses about not necessarily needing to go to church, it just doesn't make any sense. So, Joel, hope that helps. Here is a question from Tony. Tony wants to know, why didn't God make Adam and Eve at the same time? He knew it wasn't good for men to be alone. So why did he make Adam by himself? Tony, uh, I, I usually start answering these questions, uh, why questions, is is um, we're not demonstrating wisdom nor humility when we ask why God did something. If this is what the Bible says he did, he did it, and at some point we've got to know his character uh, to a degree that we understand that it was best for Adam, it was best for us. Whatever he, he tells us in the Word, uh, he did it because his love is is uh, love for us is infinite, that he always and only wants the best for us. So it, we know this was the perfect will of God, the perfect plan of God. Now, I think there's another reason that there was a delay between God making Adam and then later making Eve. And I think this is when God's partnership with man began. And by that I mean it was when God used man to accomplish his will instead of God just doing it. Now, let me explain what I mean. Adam lived in a perfect environment. A man made by the finger of God, 
from nothing, from the dust. Imagine Adam's first conscious thought, and we can't, but imagine looking around and, and thinking in this paradise, th- this is beautiful, this is perfect. He didn't know he needed anything, but God did. God knew he needed a companion, a helper. And so God partnered with man in showing him his need. Now, the way he did it was interesting. He had all of the animals go by Adam to be named. We can imagine what that would look like. I mean, Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, Mr. and Mrs. Tiger, Mr. and Mrs. Camel. They all walked by Adam, and Adam gave them names off the subject. Imagine how brilliant Adam was in this unfallen creation. So we would see these animals come by, male and female, and at some point he would get the idea that everybody has somebody but him. Out of all of the animals that came before Adam, Adam was the only one that was alone. And God partnered with him in that sense to let him know that there was something that he was lacking. He couldn't possibly have known on his own, but God partnered with him to accomplish that. And that's when God put him into a deep sleep and formed from the side of man, not out of a rib, but from the side of man, God, with his own finger, created woman, the mother of all the living Eve. And Adam woke up out of that deep sleep and saw his wife and thought, now I'm complete. I, too, like all of the animals, have someone. This is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, he said. And I bet he said, wow, just before that. So, Tony, that's why God waited. He wanted to prove to Adam. Now, Adam should have remembered this for the time when the forbidden tree was placed in the garden, but he didn't. He forgot. But God wanted Adam to know that he's got his back. He wanted Adam to know that whatever you really need, I'm going to provide. The things you can't provide for yourself, I will provide. It should have given Adam great faith in God and should have been so grateful in heart to God that when Eve started hanging around the forbidden tree, Adam would have said, no, let's don't go there. Let's let's don't go anywhere close to there. Remember how good God is. God gave you to me, Eve. But of course, they didn't do that. So that's why God didn't make them at the same time. Tony, thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Janet. She asks, 1 Corinthians says that women have to be quiet in church. Why? And is that for today as well? Um, Janet, 1 Corinthians uh, is not a passage of Scripture um, where where Paul is passing along order uh, for church worship. Uh, When he... he, Paul writes to Timothy in the pastoral epistles that... um, um, headship leadership needs to be male uh, that women are not permitted to teach or have authority over a man he goes back to Genesis and this is just simple hermeneutics he goes back to Genesis to uh, describe um, what was God's reasoning for it was not man who was deceived but woman and um, and and the order in the church was born out of that. In First Corinthians, there's no appeal, no hermeneutic that that reaches back to Genesis. Genesis sort of sets a foundation that says these are the rules that will be in the church uh, in perpetuity. Um, but not so in First Corinthians. First Corinthians was dealing a very specific. Um, cultural issue in the church at Corinth. It was an out-of-control church. Um, Women were rebelling against their husbands and this new teaching about being in submission to their husbands um, in in the Oriental culture as it was in uh, in the ancient world. Uh, Men and women most often sat on different sides of the church or women would sit in the back and men would sit in front. 
uh, and uh, the women who wanted to be heard, they wanted to exercise their newfound freedom, were creating uh, chaos and disorder in the church. So that's why he says women remain silent in the church. Um, uh, not only that, but, but if you have a question, ask your husband. He was trying to establish order in an out-of-control church. And, uh, Janet, that's the only reason. The same thing is true with the head coverings. God's not really talking about hats or scarves. He's talking about authority, submitting to authority. So in Corinth, it, it was nothing more than a cultural application um, to help bring control and order to a church that, was, uh, that, that demonstrated neither of those things. So um, no women don't have to be quiet in the church. Uh, we know that. We know that Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses. Uh, there were women who were involved in public prayer. Uh, there were women who had positions of influence in the church, um, going all the way back to the first century church. So, uh, no, women can feel free to speak, just needs to be decently in order, as should be the case with everyone. Hey, we're at the end of the first half hour of the program, 340-9585. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We'd love your calls in the last half hour. We'll see you in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR let's go to a question that dominic sent in dominic said was Peter the first pope? Dominic, no, 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 a thousand times no. The Roman Catholic Church, as we know it, now all you have to do is look in your history books. You can find this online. All you have to do is understand that the Roman Catholic Church, as we understand it, didn't even begin, Catholic meaning universal, until 313 A.D. when Constantine um, proclaimed Christianity the official religion of Rome. 313 A.D. How old do you think Peter would have been then? So obviously, no. Peter died um, probably in the 70s A.D., the first century. So there's no way Peter could have been alive. This is nothing more than tradition and superstition, and it's been um, ad- advanced from the beginning of, of time. Uh, it's just not true. It can't possibly be true because Peter was dead. So that's what we need to understand uh, about that. You know, I, I got so upset one day. Now, now I'm a Jeopardy fan. And uh, um, we don't get to watch it much because I'm doing the radio program when it comes on here. We used to tape it from time to time or DVR it. And Paul and I would watch it together. And <laughs> one day there was a question that uh, Peter, uh, the first pope of the Catholic Church, and Peter was the answer. And, and I said, Jeopardy's lying. Jeopardy's lying. Why don't they just take the facts? But see, it's been repeated so often. Um, and, and advanced by by Catholic tradition uh, for so long that it's just frankly become something that's been accepted. Oh yeah, everybody knows Peter's the first pope. He wasn't. He wasn't. Something to think about. Peter was married. If Peter was the first pope, why wouldn't popes be able to be married? Catholic priests, why wouldn't they be able to be married if Peter was the first pope? It's just not, it's it's an area where they're not interested in what's true. So, Dominic, the answer to your question is no. Here is a question from Ted. This also is interesting for me. He said, do you think there will be a revival in the United States Church? Ted, I hope and pray so. Um, but it's not looking too good, is it? I mean, if we just look at the evidence... Um, 
it doesn't look to me like the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States is getting closer to him, is becoming more like him, is declaring, taking a stand for him in this evil world that we live in. So I would say the evidence doesn't look good. Now, two things. One, we need to remember that revival never happens apart from the initiative of God. It's God the Holy Spirit testifying about Jesus through his word and moving people to him. Revival isn't these silly meetings that we see churches have that they call revivals or these tent meetings they call revivals. When true revival breaks out, it has an influence on sin. It changes lives. It changes communities. And um, Ted, we, we don't see any evidence of any of those things. So pray that there is a revival. I'm still hopeful that God's Spirit will move uh, at least one more time on the United States of America before um, Jesus returns. But I'm not really hopeful. The second thing I wanted to say is this. Whenever we think about revival, uh, we have a tendency um, in our church culture to think of it as something that happens out there. Lord, I hope you save them. I hope you get people's hearts revived. But revival needs to start in our hearts, your heart, Ted, and mine. And if we're going to influence a world, make sure, make no mistake, revival is people repenting of their sins. Repenting of their sins. The church in the United States of America is loath to talk about repentance and sin. We'd rather make people feel good with stories and self-esteem anecdotes. That won't bring revival. The way to pray for revival, Ted, and I'm going to quote J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee used to say, if you want to pray for revival, draw a circle in the ground, stand inside that circle and say, Lord, let revival begin right here in this circle. You see, it's up to each and every one of us to be revived. And it's a prayer, by the way, that God will answer. So, yes, I hope, I don't think there will be, but I hope there will be. And as a pastor of Calvary Chapel, San Antonio, Ted, I tell my church all the time, Lord, we offer to be the place it begins. And as of now, not even everybody in our church is revived. So it's just something that we really need to pray for. You know, it's um interesting read, Ted. Um, do some research and, and, and find some books. Um, you can find some of them online, but I like books, books. Uh, find some books that talk about the, the great revival movements, the Welsh revival and the, 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 the Jesus movement revival that Calvary Chapel was associated with and um, John Knox in Scotland and, and, and just read about what happens in revival. People would fall off bar stools. Uh, bars and taverns in the old world would, would, would completely close down because there would be no customers left for them. People's lives change radically. That's what revival is. And the only life that I have any control over, Ted, and the only life you have any control over is our own. So make sure revival starts in your heart and let it spread to your home, let it spread to your workplace, and then pretty much you'll see revival breaking out everywhere you go. That's the really important thing. We want people to get saved. So, Ted, thank you for the question. Here is an anonymous question. Sort of a challenging one. Challenging. They're challenging me. Um, anonymous says, I heard you say that viewing pornography is as bad as adultery. How can that be so when no one gets hurt or cheated on in pornography? Uh, anonymous, a couple of things. First and foremost, um, who says nobody gets hurt? If you're a male, and I'm going to assume you are, and you're viewing pornography, you're cheating on your wife, your one flesh. 
You're dragging her into the cesspool of your sin. You're forcing her. And wives know if men are looking at pornography. We can try to hide it, but just by virtue of trying to hide it, they know that we're looking. Do you know what that does? It makes your wife compare herself with the images you're looking at on screen. And it turns them bitter and sour because they can't compete with your mental images. And the wife that you've sworn to love and cherish and protect is suddenly ready to give up because she can never measure up. The devil tells her he wouldn't be looking at pornography if you were pretty enough or thin enough or if you were exciting enough. You see, we've been completely consumed by lust. I have a question asked is this. Just because viewing pornography isn't physically interacting with another human being, you're interacting with other human beings. Consider this, Ted. Anonymous. I'm sorry, Ted was the previous question. Um, consider this. The the uh, I'm assuming you're looking at women, not necessarily. That's not a safe assumption anymore. But the person that you're watching on a computer screen is somebody else's wife or daughter or sister. And while they may be doing this willingly, and some of them getting paid a lot of money to do it, you're, in fact, harming them by giving them, providing a market for them to destroy themselves. Make no mistake, when Paul said that when a man sins sexually, he sins against his own body, sexual sin takes us places that we never dreamed we would go, and takes us there faster than we ever believed possible. And our perception of sex, our perception of women, is so distorted. I'm going to go one step farther, Anonymous, and say that in this current climate, culturally, of the sexual harassment and sexual abuse and even rape claims that we see um, virtually every day now in the news, this is created by pornography. Men who are looking at pornography, and it's going to get much worse for the generation that's after me because I, I didn't have pornography to look at growing up. And now we carry it on our telephones, our computer screens, our tablets. And pornography has caused us to view women as sex objects only, and objects of our own gratification. And no wonder when an attractive woman is in the workplace, we feel like it's our right to fondle, to grab, or to harass. And Anonymous, it is a tragedy. And you're sending a question to a Christian program. I'm assuming that you would identify as a Christian. I want you to ask how you'd explain that to Jesus when you stand before him. What are you going to tell him? That your wife didn't satisfy you, so you looked at pornography? Do you, do you think that excuse will fly? Do you think that self-gratification is what God's plan for your sex life is? And any other pastor will tell you this. We deal with more women who are crushed in spirit, crushed in heart, because their men are looking and interacting with other women sexually, and most often prefer that, most often prefer that to the actual sex act. Why? Because it's in our brain. And that's the devil. That's what Satan does when we sin against our own body. My final thought on this, Anonymous. First um, Timothy 5.2 says, I treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Are you doing that? Is that how you're viewing women after looking at pornography? 
if you have children in the car, turn this off right now. One of the common characteristics of all of these men, these important, powerful, wealthy men from all walks of life, politics, entertainment, athletics, one of the common threads is masturbation. And that comes from pornography. So anonymous, lots of people get hurt. And the cheating never stops. That's why we close the door. That's why we put passwords on our phones and don't want our wives to see who we've been talking to or what we've been looking at. Pornography is the single most destructive element in the Church of Jesus Christ today. And it ought not to be that way. Oh, 340-9585. You know, a, a pastor's heart just breaks when people justify that. Now, we who are pastors, I don't want anybody to understand. We're, we're men. We're tempted by the same things that everybody else is. And unfortunately, a whole bunch of pastors give in as well. I would give in as well if I got some distance between me and Jesus. Can you imagine me trying to explain to Paula why after praying for me for 13 years, the way I thanked her for that was to look at other women in pornographic situations? This is heartbreaking and it's become culturally acceptable. And that's a shame. 340-9585. Here is a question that came in from Donald. He says, what's the difference between mortal sin and venial sin? Well, Donald, you've either coming from a Catholic background or talking to a Catholic. Um, that's neither is the biblical position on sin. Now, the definition of mortal sin is sin that has no remedy. Uh, sin that you do uh, willfully, uh, murder, suicide, um, but, but there can be other sins described as mortal, uh, willfully with full knowledge that these things are sin, you do them anyway. Uh, a mortal sin is one that there's no recovery, there's no remedy. A venial sin, those sins, those everyday sins that we all do, and we get caught, we ask for forgiveness, and we're forgiven. But, but, but again, these are Catholic traditions and have nothing whatsoever to do with Scripture at all. And that's why whenever you find a religion that elevates traditions on the same level or above the level of Scripture in terms of authority, you know, all these crazy concepts, the biblical definition of sin, and, and we cannot walk with Jesus unless we have a clear understanding of what sin is according to the Bible. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is doing what we know we shouldn't do and continuing to do it. And Jesus said, but I died so that you wouldn't have to do that anymore. I'm, I set you free so that you'd be free from sin. Not free to sin, but free from sin. And yet what's happened, Donald, is that because we know God's grace covers all sin. Every Christian, every born-again person in this audience, all of their sins are already forgiven, past, present, and future. Everyone. But when we sin as a Christian, even though that sin positionally has been forgiven, our fellowship with God is broken. We're on our own when we're living in willful, unconfessed sin. And again, the Catholic Church has taken this to mean that all you have to do is go into confession, make a confession, and say you're our fathers or Hail Marys, uh, and, and um, you're forgiven. But, but that's nonsense. John says if we confess our sins, and that word confession means to agree with God relative to what sin is. He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and here's the key in fellowship, and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So instantly our right standing with God is perfect again. All we have to do is be genuine in our repentance. God, I blew it. I'm so sorry. Uh, in, in the Bible study that I'm going to be doing here tomorrow night in 
First uh, Samuel chapter thirty. David, who's been in a in a bad place now for sixteen months, as we pick up the story tomorrow, uh, he, he's going to repent of his sin. And God is going to be with him instantly. The Bible says in the sixth verse that David found strength in the Lord. And what that means is his fellowship with God was reestablished because he sought God. And then there was going to be a battle and David would win it. The Lord would tell him what to do. And and, and that's what happens when we confess our sins. So, Donald, for, forget the Catholic Church and their position on mortal sin or venial sin. The only sin that's unforgivable is rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, testifying about Jesus, declaring Jesus, and doing that unto death. All other sins, every one of them can be forgiven. So again, mortal sin, the Catholic Church says, is a sin with no remedy. Venial sin is sort of an ordinary category of sin that we can confess and be forgiven. Neither of those positions have any biblical basis whatsoever. So I hope that helps a little bit, Donald. Thank you very much. Here's a question from Brian. He says, uh, are we at the end of the world and what happens next according to prophecy? Um I hope we're at the end of the world, Brian, but I don't know for sure. Um, I think we're getting close to the return of Jesus, but people have been saying that for 2,000 years. The first disciples expected Jesus to come back at any moment. All you have to read is the two letters to Thessalonica and see what an uproar uh, occurred, what an opportunity false teachers had when people started dying and they were told that, well, then they missed out. They're not going to go to heaven. And Paul's writing to encourage him, no, that's not true. You remember how we taught you these things. And then he goes on to make it clear. So um, I hope we're at the end of the world, but I don't know for sure that we are. What happens next, according to prophecy, is very, very simple. It is the rapture of the church. So I hope that helps. Let's go to line one, San Antonio. We have an anonymous caller. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Yes, sir, Pastor Ron. Um, uh, me and my wife know a couple, and um, the, this other couple, the lady, is having an affair. She confided with my wife. And uh, my me and my wife share everything. She let me know about it, and and they're they're friends. And I I just I couldn't hold it no more. I had to tell her husband, uh, and now she's mad at my wife, and she my wife's mad at me. And she said, why didn't you just let, you know let him find out for himself? But I, I just I just couldn't. So it, that's all I have. I just wanted to hear okay. what you have to say. Okay, thank you. I'll make this the last question that we get today. And uh, Anonymous, you can listen on the air. Uh, thank you for being brave. Thank you for taking a stand. Um, the only thing I would have done different personally, uh, if I was you, is I would have gone to the wife and say, uh, my wife and I share everything. Uh, and she told me what you told her. Um, and I'm going to tell your husband if you don't. And and I've been in that situation before when I've said, look, I'll give you 24 hours to to uh, tell your spouse what what's going on. Uh, but make no mistake, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. And um, Anonymous, here's one of those things where um, people can get mad at you, uh, but, but refusing to be dragged into their sin, refusing to be um, involved in their lies, um, you just proved that you really are their friends. And, and while the wife doesn't know it, um, you've demonstrated what a good friend really is all about. Uh, she needs to repent of her sin. Uh, they need to work this out. But but to allow the secrecy and the sin to continue uh, would be just unacceptable. And, and you did exactly the right thing. So even if they're really angry with you, um, what I would do is is remind you that Jesus is thrilled with you right now. So uh, pray for them. 
pray for them constantly. Don't get your feelings hurt uh, because the, w- w- their their reaction is not personal. Uh, they're they're all of them now scared, and um, nobody knows what to do. So just just be comfortable with Jesus being crazy about you right now because you did the right thing. My bigger issue here, anonymous, is with you and your wife. Um, um, if, if your wife is upset with you, then she doesn't know you. She doesn't know that a godly man, and I would say to her, you should have done the same thing. You should have confronted this woman. You can't, you're not a friend if you let him think that this is okay. And if you say it's not okay, but I'm going to keep your secret, you're covering for sin. And you're proving that you're not a friend. I think this is a thing that you and your wife really need to talk through. And she needs to understand that to ask you to lie or to pretend while this horrible, horrible sin was going on um, is more damaging to your relationship at home than either one of you believe. What would Jesus have you do? And you did what Jesus would have you do. So again, the only thing I would have done differently is to give her 24 hours. Um, I know what you've done. Uh, I'm going to tell your husband if you don't. Uh, and I'm going to tell him tomorrow at 5 o'clock or whatever time is appropriate or practical. Um, and give her a chance to come clean before her husband. That usually gives him a better chance. But uh, Anonymous, thank you. I'm proud of you. And God is pleased with you. Um, stand in the gap. Be there for him because they're going to need a friend. Tough question to close the show with. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.